once again to approach the throne of grace together. Father, we thank you for the canon of Scripture, for these 66 books, Old and New Testaments, this revelation that you have given to humanity. Lord, your word gives us the truth about ourselves, truth that we would not know otherwise. It gives us the truth of you, your character, your attributes, your contours, your shape. Lord, it gives us the truth of our world, where it has been and where it's headed. It's all here in this revelation that you have given us, and we are so thankful for it. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now, use your word in power, help us, Lord, as we look at it together and discover uh, what you have embedded in it, uh, illuminate our minds and hearts, we pray in this hour, in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, uh, you'll remember that we began our rather arduous ascent up this mountain of a passage in Daniel chapter 9, the, the 70 weeks passage. Last Sunday, we went only as far as verse 24, and today, this morning, we plan to tackle the remaining three verses, 25 through 27. So take a deep breath, hang on to your hats, hopefully you've had your coffee already this morning. While we were camped uh, in verse 24 last week, we noted a couple of very crucial things there. We noted, first of all, that the phrase 70 weeks or 77s is language that echoes very purposefully. It echoes the sabbatical and jubilee concepts in Leviticus chapter 25. And that fact helps us, I think, it helps us significantly in our interpretation of the entire passage, the 70 weeks. We also took a detailed look last week at those six actions that the angel Gabriel prophesies in verse 24. And we said these are all actions, all six of them are actions that happen during the 70 weeks, each of which can be connected strongly to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're jumping into the text again, now at verse 25. The angel Gabriel is still talking. He continues to talk to Daniel, and he says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, as we did last Sunday, we plan to walk through each of today's verses slowly, uh, reflectively, trusting that the Spirit of God will help us, that he will illuminate our minds and our hearts as we read his word that he breathed out, yes? Now, one of the interpretive challenges that is posed, just one of the interpretive challenges that's posed by verse 25, is how to properly render 
the original Hebrew into English, if we are English speakers, which we are, most of us. So we have the English Standard Version there on the screen, and what I want you to notice, first of all, is that a decision has been made by the ESV Translation Committee to separate the seven weeks from the 62 weeks. Do you see that? So the ESV has, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. Full stop. So in the ESV rendering, follow me here, the implication is that this anointed one and prince figure arrives at the end of week seven. Next sentence. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. Again, what I want you to notice here is just this, that the ESV divides the first seven weeks of the 70 weeks from the next 62 weeks, and the ESV is not alone in this. For example, the Revised Standard Version and the Common English Bible also do the same thing. They too promote a division between the seven and the 62. And in fact, in my study this past week, I found a total of the Bibles that I looked at, I found a total of six Bibles, English Bibles, that go this same route. But I also looked at another six Bibles, English Bibles, including the New International Version and the New American Standard Bible, just to name two, that do not lay down such a clear division of the seven from the 62. So for example, in the New American Standard Bible, this verse reads as follows. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. All right? I know we haven't had lunch yet. In that reading, the seven and 62 are more combined. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Or take the New Jerusalem Bible. Know this then and understand, from the time there went out this message, return and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed prince, seven weeks and 62 weeks, with squares and ramparts restored and rebuilt, but in a time of trouble. So in that case too, the seven and the 62 are more combined. And the implication in that reading is that the anointed prince figure, this is very important, the anointed prince figure comes at the close of seven plus 62. In other words, he comes at the close of week 69, or we could say he comes at the start of week 70. Well, friends, this past week, having exerted significant sweat <laughs> over this issue in my study, I concluded that I side with these latter versions, like the New American Standard and the New Jerusalem Bible, 
And also with theologians like Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham, they too combine the seven and the 62. And again, the upshot of all of this is very important. If the seven and the 62 are more combined, totaling 69, then the anointed prince appears at the close of week 69, or as we said at the start of week 70, instead of appearing, as the ESV implies, after week seven. I told you this passage was something of a foreboding mountain, and here we are. But, but now guess what? <clears throat> we have additional issues uh, to work through in verse 25. Again, this is all in the cause of being careful Bible interpreters. We have additional issues to work through here. The second thing to think through is the calendar that is implied in this verse, the calendar. It says here that the 70 weeks would commence, start from the time there went out this message, return and rebuild Jerusalem. So the first of the 70 weeks begins, notice, from the time there went out this message, return and rebuild Jerusalem. And the interpretive issue is, what time or what date specifically and exactly is Gabriel referring to here? Is the message that goes out to rebuild Jerusalem the royal decree that the Persian king Cyrus published in 538 BC that declared that God's people could return to their land and rebuild their, their temple? Is it 538? Or is this message that goes out that Gabriel mentions here, is this the decree of a later Persian king named Artaxerxes who issued a decree in 445 BC for the rebuilding of Jerusalem? Or another option, is Gabriel referring here instead to some prophetic message of the return of the people to the city of Jerusalem that, that maybe was given in a book like Jeremiah? And again, friends, there's no easy, completely watertight answer here. My personal inclination is to follow the reasoning of Gentry and Wellam in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, and choose 457 BC as the commencement of the 70 weeks. 457 is when the Persian king Artaxerxes decreed a whole bounty of funding for the rebuilding and the restoration of Jerusalem's temple. That's Ezra chapter seven. And he also commanded Ezra to reestablish re magistrates, judges in the city of Jerusalem. And 457 is also the beginning, note, of a sabbatical cycle which certainly would fit for the start of the 70 weeks. And doing the math, 
A start of the 70 weeks in 457 BC would then take us all the way to 33 AD, 490 years later, when according to many calculations, Jesus Christ was crucified. Well, be that as it may, there is still one more issue for us to talk through just briefly here in verse 25. And the question is this. If the seven and the 62 are indeed meant to be sort of combined together, like they seem to be in several English translations, so that they total 69, then why divide them like this at all? into seven and 62. And I, I think the quick answer is that the seven represents the first 49 years of the 70 weeks when the temple in Jerusalem and the city itself were being actively rebuilt, actively restored. The, the first 70 weeks or the first 49 years was the time when Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were active. And there had been opposition to their rebuilding efforts, which fits with what Gabriel says here about the city being rebuilt in times of distress or in a troubled time, seven weeks. And then the 62-week period, or 434-year period that followed was a period of relative quiet. Not much happening as far as the plan of God uh, was concerned until the anointed prince came at the close of week 69 or at the beginning of week 70. Now one more thing here, friends, this is crucially important in verse 25 as we're attempting to make sense out of this very difficult passage, it's important that we focus just for a mo moment on those words, anointed prince. In the original Hebrew text, it's also two words, and those words are Mashiach Nagid. Mashiach Nagid. Mashiach is translated here into English as anointed, and Nagid is translated here as prince. Mashiach Nagid, anointed prince. Both terms, friends, are referring to a single individual, to one person. We need to see that one figure who would come at the beginning of the 70th week. Take a breath. <laughs> All right. So just before we venture forward in the text to verse 26, I want to do just a very quick, because I know this is a lot, a quick review of verse 25. We said that the English versions that combine the 7 and the 62 more are to be preferred, I think, so that the anointed prince comes after week 79, or sorry, week 69, and we argued that the start of the 70 weeks was likely 457 BC. And we said that the first seven of the 70 weeks was the time of rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem under pressure 
by the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah with a few of the minor prophets involved. While the 62 weeks were then a long stretch of time with nothing particularly juicy happening uh, in terms of God's redemptive plan. And we said that the anointed prince, the Mashiach Nagid, who is mentioned in verse 25, is a single figure who emerges at the beginning of the 70th week. Verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Again, we're going to walk slowly through this verse. So notice, friends, that it is after the 62 weeks that an anointed one will be cut off. In other words, it's after the 62 plus 7 weeks, right, of verse 25 that this anointed one is cut off. It's in week 70 that this anointed one is cut off. And that phrase there in verse 26, anointed one, is the same Hebrew word that we had in verse 25. It's Mashiach again, here in verse 26. So then there's every reason, listen, there's every reason to think that the Mashiach Nagid of verse 25 the anointed prince of verse 25 is one and the same as the anointed one, the Mashiach, who is cut off here in verse 26 during the 70th week. It's the same term that is used back to back in verse 25 and verse 26. But going deeper here now, going deeper, notice this phrase here, cut off, and shall have nothing. So this Mashiach, this anointed one, would be cut off and have nothing. First of all, the word translated cut off is a word that is used very often in the Old Testament to describe the making of a covenant. Literally, to make a covenant in Old Testament speak is to cut a covenant. So this word cut or cut off has associations with covenant. This Mashiach would be cut off. He would die, in other words. And the language suggests that his death would be associated with a covenant of some kind. Secondly, notice the part that says, and have nothing. He would be cut off and have nothing. Now in the King James Version, if anyone has it here today, they translated the Hebrew a little differently here. 
It says in the King James that Messiah would be cut off, listen, but not for himself. But not for himself. And Gentry and Wellam, who I'm largely following here this morning, they also prefer that particular rendering of the Hebrew. Now listen, if you are cut off, killed, but not for yourself, it implies that your death is for others. Yes? That it is a vicarious death. Your death carries import, it carries significance for other people. And as we said, this death being described here in verse 26, it has covenantal associations also, according to the language that is used here. This cutting off, this death, would be a covenantal, vicarious death. Now friends, obviously, we've come here to worship today, obviously this is a stunning prophecy. Stunning prophecy given by the angel Gabriel hundreds of years beforehand, of who? Of Jesus Christ and His death on Mount Calvary. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus would be cut off. Isaiah 53.8, He was cut off out of the land of the living. The death of the suffering servant, the death of the man of sorrows, was a covenantal death. It was the bringing of the new covenant, yes, in his blood. He is the mediator, friends, of a new covenant. It says so in Hebrews 9.15. He is the mediator of a new covenant. And his death was not for himself. To quote again the King James Version of Daniel 9.26, his death was indeed a vicarious death. Yes? A substitutionary death. Jesus took on himself the sin of his people, hallelujah, hallelujah, and paid the death penalty before God for the sin of of others like you and I, so that we could go free and be forgiven. Praise Jesus. Jesus is the King who dies on behalf of others to set others free. All right, so that's the first sentence of verse 26. (laughs) What about the final few sentences? Well, Gabriel continues here by prophesying this way. He says, and the people of, notice, the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And so the first interpretive issue here is to decide the identity of the prince who is to come. Now there's a school of interpretation 
that argues that this prince who is to come in verse 26 is the Antichrist. But I'm not in that camp. As I look again at the original Hebrew text here, I see that the word translated prince here in verse 26 is the same word that was used in the verse just before it. It was used in verse 25 to describe Mashiach Nagid, anointed prince. And the word in verse 26 is the same word as it was in verse 25. It's Nagid again. Prince. So follow me here. It would make sense. It would make sense that the word prince in both verses is referring to the same person. And I think it is. In both verse 25 and verse 26, the anointed prince who appears at the start of week 70 and the prince who is to come is the same individual. Read with New Testament lenses on, it's Jesus in both verses. Now listen, Jesus was still to come. From the historical vantage point of Gabriel, as he stood there relaying this prophecy to Daniel, the first coming of Jesus at that point was still hundreds of years away when Gabriel was speaking these words. Jesus was still to come. And note carefully, friends, in verse 26, note this very carefully, it's not the prince himself who destroys the city and sanctuary, it's the people of the prince who destroy the city and sanctuary. And this, isn't this precisely what happened? The prince, Jesus, came... And he was cut off, he died that covenantal, vicarious death on the, on the cross, and his people, namely, the Jewish people of the first century AD in Jerusalem, several of them were instrumental, they were blameworthy, especially according to the Jewish historian Josephus, they were blameworthy for the, for the eventual destruction of the temple and its environs in 70 AD when what happened? The Roman army invaded and the temple was demolished. And in fact, when the Jewish high priest Caiaphas rejected the testimony of Jesus Christ at his trial, in the moments just before the crucifixion, when that rejection of Jesus happened, it was a portent. It was a sure sign that the temple was in deep trouble. The temple would be destroyed. Going back to our verse, verse 26, the end of the Jerusalem sanctuary and the devastation of the city of Jerusalem came with a flood. It came with a flood. As Isaiah talks about, he uses this language when invading armies come in, they'll come in like a flood. This happened with the flood of the Roman army coming in. 
The Roman general Titus Flavius Vespanianus, I think it is Vespasianus, boy, that's a tongue twister. He brought four legions of soldiers into Jerusalem in 70 AD and wreaked absolute havoc. There was war and the temple was destroyed. Here in verse 26, the angel Gabriel told Daniel that desolations were decreed and the desolations that he's prophesying here ended up being the destruction of the temple and extensive damage, extensive damage to Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, as we come to our final verse this morning, in this mountain of a passage, as we've said, we come now to verse 27. I think that what will help us understand the verse is to see that it runs parallel with verse 26. So in other words, we need to understand this. The events that are described in verse 27 are not brand new events that follow after the events of verse 26 in some sort of chronological fashion. Rather, the events of verse 27 happen in the same time period, in the 70th week, same as verse 26. So these two verses are running parallel with each other. This is a very common device in Hebrew poetry especially, synonymous parallelism. To see this parallel scenario, let's again walk slowly through our last verse. So the first sentence of verse 27 reads as follows, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, of course, the first question to address here is this simple question. Who is the he? Who's the he that is mentioned at the start of the verse, he shall make a strong covenant with many. Well, abiding by the conventions of literature, he would have to refer to the last individual who was mentioned in the passage. And the last individual mentioned in the passage was the prince, about halfway through verse 26. And we argued that the prince in verse 26 is none other than the anointed one of the earlier part of that verse, who is also the anointed prince who was mentioned in verse 25. In every case, it's Jesus. Or at least it's Jesus prophesied by Gabriel hundreds of years prior to his first arrival. So the he, here in verse 27, is the Messiah who was to come. The he, here, in verse 27, is Jesus. He is the one who makes a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, the one week here is the final week, the 70th week. And the strong covenant, the covenant that he inaugurates, that he still upholds today, is the unchanging new covenant in his blood. He makes that covenant with many, notice, and with that word many, what's the angel Gabriel doing? The angel Gabriel is purposely echoing the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, who used the word many 
in describing what the suffering servant would do for his people. Isaiah 53, 11, the servant would make many to be accounted righteous. Isaiah 53, 12, he would bear the sin of many. And here in Daniel 9, 27, he makes a strong covenant, a covenant in his blood with many. And we also see here in, in Daniel 9, 27, notice this, that halfway through the 70th week, this anointed prince, this Messiah, would do what? Put an end to sacrifice and offering. He would come and he would put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now this verse, this part of the verse runs parallel with the phrase in verse 26 that said that he would be cut off but not for himself. This covenantal cutting off, we said, is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross prophesied by Gabriel hundreds of years prior. This would be a death for others, a vicarious substitutionary death. And now here in verse 27, it's the same event. The cross whereby the, the anointed Prince Jesus would put an end to sacrifice and offering. As Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam say, quote, his death will bring an end to the sacrificial system. Why? Because it is a final solution to the problem of sin. Yes, indeed, friends, we think here, of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, which speaks of our high priest Jesus, the one we've come to worship today, and says this of him. He has no need, like the former old covenant priests had need, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hallelujah. Jesus, the Mashiach Nagid, anointed prince, has put an end to sacrifice and offering. Or we think of Hebrews 9.26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, how? By the sacrifice of himself. With the coming of Jesus, with the event of his cross, there is no longer any need for repeated temple sacrifices, and this is what, the Gabriel, what Gabriel is prophesying here when he says that the coming anointed prince would put an end to sacrifice and offering. And that consummate redemptive event, friends, the cross, the shed blood of the high priest, halfway through week 70, the death of the king, the, the covenant, covenant blood, it has never and it will never lose its power. Amen? In 2024, God still rescues helpless sinners by the cross of His dear Son. Praise God, Praise God indeed. There's power in the blood for our release. There's power in the blood to bring us peace. The merits of His blood 
will not decrease. There's power in the blood of Jesus. Let's go finally to the very last sentence of our passage. About halfway through verse 27, Gabriel says, And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Again, we need to understand this part parallels what we had in verse 26, where Gabriel had prophesied that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, yes, with the Jerusalem Jews culpable, and a flood of Roman soldiers would come in, warring, making desolate. So here in verse 27, one who makes desolate, this is the Roman general Titus, whose soldiers would come in so destructively into Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now you know, friends, one of God's promises in Leviticus 26, verse 31, is that Israel's cities, he promised this, Israel's cities would be laid waste if they were to persist in covenant violations and in rebellion against God. And that's just exactly what happened in A.D. 70. Their holy city was laid waste by the Romans. After they rejected the Messiah, whom God had sent, after they rejected the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, their city was laid waste. But our verse tells us, notice, that the one who makes desolate, who we've said is the Roman general Titus, he would arrive on the scene in Jerusalem when he'd come on the wing of abominations. Now, Titus and his soldiers arrived in A.D. 70. But in 68 and 69 A.D., there was already a battle that was raging in Jerusalem. It was a battle for control of the city. And that battle was being waged between three Jewish individuals. And their names were John of Gishala, Simon Bargiora, and Eleazar ben Simon, each of whom was vying to rule the city. And John of Geshala, in particular, was a very treacherous and a very tyrannical figure who set himself up as ruler, almost as a false messiah, in the Jerusalem temple. He disregarded the law of God. He was a very sacrilegious person who was also responsible for the slaughter of several people. And I think it likely that the abominations uh, prophesied in verse 27 are the sacrilegious actions of this zealot named John of Geshala in 68-69 AD. The Roman general Titus comes on the wing of those detestable happenings in Jerusalem. Take another breath. So now, friends, we have reached at last the summit of our trek up the mountain of this passage. And as we said at the beginning, it calls for humility. It calls for humility because uh, 
I looked at so many different interpretations and commentators. There's so many different interpretations, each of which has valid points. So I was trying to cut a path <laughs> here. After all that thinking, after all the details, after all the mental energy that we've expended together this morning, here's my hope, and then I'm done. My simple hope is that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ has shone through each difficult verse, and that you'll now take a fresh vision of our majestic King with you into your week. A vision of Jesus who comes proclaiming himself as the fulfillment of the climactic jubilee. Take with you a vision of Jesus, whose cross is prophesied by Gabriel in so many breathtaking ways throughout this entire passage. Jesus, the new and better temple of God. Jesus, the Mashiach Nagid the anointed prince sent by the Father to die a covenantal, substitutionary, vicarious death for others, for many on the cross. He is Isaiah's suffering servant, and he is the great high priest who is also the acceptable Lamb of God, the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world and puts an end to sacrifice and offering. How? By offering up himself. He is the risen Jesus Christ, yes? The conquering warrior who lives to make intercession for us. So go forth into your week, whatever it might bring, in the strength and in the grace and in the power of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, whose first advent was prophesied by Gabriel and whose second advent is promised and is soon to be. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are so good to give us your word, uh, to give us consciousness, to give us hearts and minds, ears and eyes, ability to reason and rationalize and think. Lord God, we are so thankful for all these gifts that often we take for granted. And I pray, Lord, that the encouragement of the Holy Spirit be upon us all, and humbly that we would walk with you this week, contrite, uh, spreading your love to others, to all who we come in contact with, for your name's sake, for your kingdom, for your glory. Amen. Mm -hmm.